0: Welcome to the Loan with Jen podcast, your weekly source to keep you informed on everything about financing your home, where you will hear real facts, no BS. I'm your host, Jennifer Hernandez, a loan officer since 1995, and over 4,300 families financed to date. If you're starting to think about buying or refinancing a home, wonder if you have the right credit, savings, or even income, you're in the right place. On my weekly episodes, I make complicated topics easy to understand. By the way, my license is NMLS 514497. The ideas expressed here are my own opinions and don't represent any legal advice. Thanks for joining, let's jump in.
1: Welcome to another episode, Loan with Jen, whether you're streaming us on podcast or wherever you listen to audio, or if you're watching us on YouTube, I have a treat for you today. How not to commit mortgage fraud. And I don't mean to shock you, but I do because mortgage fraud is always rampant. There's always a new way that People are figuring out how to keep the system and I'm here to put the kibosh on it. It is um, sometimes people don't mean to do it and they're being led by a bad player that's actually in our industry. So I have a special guest who used to work for a third party company that consulted the FBI on who to prosecute for six years. Jen Bailey is my dear friend. Uh, we are colleagues together at Legacy Mutual Mortgage, where we both are loan officers. And Jen, I we have rehearsed none of this. I have not actually heard your, your full story. And I said, oh, my gosh, we have to create a podcast about this. This is, this is what we need to do. So tell me, when, when was this? What years was it that you tell us a little bit? Just start talking. I'm going to ask you questions.
2: It was about 10 years ago, 10 to 15. Goodness gracious. It's been forever. Um,
1: it was, was it right after the meltdown?
2: So I was mostly investigating fraud from the 2008 crash. Yes. Like that was a bulk of my reporting was on that because that's when mortgage fraud was rampant. And that was actually what resulted in the crash was all the mortgage fraud over lending to people that couldn't afford it. And then they wouldn't pay their mortgage. There was tons of foreclosures.
1: So this was kind of a 2012 to 10 to 12 time frame is when you did this.
2: Yes. Yep. Yeah. And we would investigate. What's that? Six years. Yeah. Yep. And we would go back all the way to 2001 files. So it wasn't just a certain period. They would send us files going all the way back to about 2001. So I was investigating about 10 to 12 years worth of, loan reports and loan files to see where the fraud was. And I found fraud, Jen, in like 90% of the files, which was so mind-blowing.
1: So how do they, how do the files get flagged? Like how do the companies know who to investigate? What are some of the triggers?
2: Good question. So the first trigger for all my initial reviews was someone that missed a mortgage payment. As soon as they missed a mortgage payment, the PMI company would send us the entire massive loan file and say, here, Jen, see if you can find any fraud. I have a feeling since they're missing payments, the lender's going to make a PMI claim. See if you can find any fraud in this. And I found fraud in almost all of
1: them. But for those listening that might not know who, what PMI is, what is PMI? PMI
2: is private mortgage insurance. If you put less than 20% down on a home, if you have a conventional loan, you have to have private mortgage insurance or on other loan types like FHA. Private mortgage insurance protects a lender in case you... Uh, default on your mortgage. If you default on your mortgage, the lender doesn't want to be stuck with a the house they now have to sell and a loan they have to pay for. They will make a claim to the PMI company to recoup some of their
1: losses. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah, similar to a house insurance where if the house burns mm-hmm. down, yeah, for sure. Yep. So um, yeah, and we'll put in the notes in the description, we'll put a video about kind of PMI and what PMI is, but the bottom line is PMI, if there was PMI, right? because some loans don't have PMI, Um, but if PMI was in place, let's say, now, could they have missed a mortgage payment? Like, let's say that I was a borrower that I paid on time for seven years, and then all of a sudden, randomly, I miss a mortgage payment. Is it flagged then too, even after like seven, eight years?
2: It can be. So the PMI company, it's up to their discretion their discretion and their risk analytics department. So their risk analytics department will look at your loan to value ratio, the amount of equity you have in the home, what your credit scores were when you bought the home. So a lot of times they'll do a simultaneous flag if you missed a payment and the initial loan looks like you barely squeaked by to get into the home. One payment alone is enough to flag the file.
1: Wow. But the most, I mean, am I right that the biggest radar is like the first six months of the loan? Because that's usually, I mean, if it was fraud, they're not making a payment. Like, yeah,
2: that's the biggest flag. You got it. That, and they also will do random files. So just to make sure they're keeping good quality control on their end, after closing, they'll do post-closing audits where they'll have people like me just go through the original loan file within the past, you know, the next few months after you buy a house, just to see if there's any red flags that they need to be aware of.
1: Okay. Okay. Got you. Got you. Got you. Um, Well, that's all very interesting. So you, this company, the FBI would hire an outside company. It's almost like you're a private investigator. So you would get a file, a big, well, back then profiles were still paper. So you could yep. get this big and you would just have to start digging like
2: Yes, we I dig through every, I saw every single piece of paper in the loan file. So that's why I would say that doing loans now is easy and I'm really good at it because I had to understand every single in and out of a loan from beginning to end. every document, um, pay stubs, W2s, be able to spot where they're fake, which was pretty easy. Most people didn't take the time to understand how to calculate taxes correctly on fake W2s, bank statements, all the things go through identity fraud, liability fraud, occupancy fraud, I'd have to call and interview every party to the transaction. So I'd have to interview the borrowers, the loan officer, because the loan officer was the primary one committing the fraud. Uh, The realtors, sometimes the realtors were involved in the fraud, the appraisers, the title company. I mean, I'd have to interview and investigate every single person, record the calls and put it in my report. Oh,
1: wow. Wow, wow. How long would it take you... From like, let's say on average, I know there were different files were different, but to go from beginning to end, once you got the flag, like, hey, this needs to be investigated, here's the file, how long would it take?
2: It would be about most files I could get through in about four hours. I got really fast because I just had a system where I would go through and be able to spot it pretty quick. Some files that involved more difficult investment scam situations could take a week because I'd also have to get a hold of all the parties. Um, if it was a, a lot of fraud, I would find.
1: So the process is you're going through the file and you start actually contacting the parties during the investigation.
2: Yep. During the investigation, we would reach out to employers to verify the original verification of employment that was obtained during the transaction to make sure that it's legit. We would have, we would go to the banks and the employers and get brand new verifications of employment and verifications of assets to make sure it matches with the loan file. So we'll go back to the exact date. So we know exactly what it should have looked like. And those were fraudulent all the time as well, where someone's employer would just fill it out incorrectly to get them the loan.
1: So I had, um, and it's interesting. So I've been an originator for a very long time. And so I've usually I have to say it's very rare. Like I'm I'm only referred to people by referral. So it's usually a little bit of a filter because someone knows someone and it's from their sphere. Like they're doing business with people that they know. I don't do business with any cold people that I don't know. So the chances are a little bit less. It doesn't mean that it hasn't happened, but I've had uh, the biggest cases that I see. I did have actually one time through the processing, the W-2 and the pay stub were incongruent. They didn't match and the verification of employment and the son worked for the dad's company and the dad's accountant was lying. Like when we unraveled it and figured it out and we hadn't closed yet, thank God, but we started looking for those inconsistencies. And I just said, Hey, um, we're not going to be able to do a loan. There's too much inconsistent. Like they were cold busted. And, but the, the dad was, They were lying for the kids. So that's actually just for those of you listening, if you are buying from family or selling to family or work for a family owned business, just know there's going to be more questions like don't be turned off when the lender is asking you a little bit more deeply questions because that's actually where a good percent of fraud can happen because family members are willing to say whatever to get them along. Did you find that, Jen? Like what percent would you say were like families or people like that close related were involved?
2: Yeah, very frequently. So we would call them the non-arms length transaction fraud. So we would find it all the time where family members would do that, whether they worked for the employer's company or the their father's company or parents' company, or they would get a gift from the parents that they actually ended up paying back. So if you say you're going to get a gift and you end up paying the person back and your file is audited, you could be prosecuted for mortgage fraud. That one was pretty common.
1: Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So if it's a gift, it's really a gift, not just like, hey, yeah. you know, dad, deposit money in my account that I'm really going to pay them back the next day. You know? Yeah. Exactly. It. Um, So I wanted to talk about, so income... Fraud is a way that there's fraud. There's also fraud of, like you mentioned, assets. So money that you're getting, usually it involves a gift, right? Because if we're showing assets from a liquidation of a bona fide financial institution, it's pretty cut and dry. I mean, the money's there, right? Right. Um, so that actually now with technology doesn't happen as much because we, I mean, statements are statements, but, you know, um, all those statements can be doctored.
2: Yes, I saw them all the time. And the funny thing is some people wouldn't take the time to make sure like the balance on the prior bank statement didn't match the prior balance on the new bank statement. Like it would be just kind of really obvious red flags to me, where I would just do those double checks and they didn't think of it. So yeah, don't alter documents.
1: Now, with well, with technology for years and years, you've been able. You you have a good Adobe Premiere software. You could doctor a W two or, and that's why lenders are constantly doing checks behind the scenes that you don't even know about. Because hopefully, we're catching these things. But like you mentioned, several of the bad actors were originators themselves, which is scary. Um, but unfortunately that's, that's what happens. Um, so I guess if you're listening to this, because there's some people that don't mean to commit fraud because they don't understand Mm -hmm. if the lender is leading you to put something on the file or to do something, you're just thinking, well, they're the professional, I guess if it's, Really, going to be an investment, but they're telling me to call it a primary. I mean, okay. You know, people don't, I think there's a handful of percentage of people that don't realize what they're getting looped into because it's just naive. They don't do this every day. So if something sounds incorrect, and if you're having a, the lender, the loan officer that you're dealing with who's going to benefit from commission that's why, you know, they're, they're going to get a percent commission based on your sales. So they're unfortunately got some motivation to do something and kind of go out of the gray area. But if you, if you've made a loan application and something doesn't sound right, and you're like, wait a minute, but that's, that's not the truth. Then you need to kick that lender to the curb and go get a second opinion because there's, I mean, Jen jail, let's talk about the prosecution. I mean, in the fraud cases, what percent of the time did things get prosecuted and the and the government won? And what's the repercussion? What kind of what, what, what kind of jail time and stuff like that did people get? So
2: the FBI would not report back to us on what the outcome was of all of the prosecutions. We do know that they were prosecuting and they would follow up with us on additional investigation to the reports that we would produce, but jail times did range from two to 99 years for committing mortgage fraud. So, and the fines are incredibly hefty. So definitely, like you said, make sure you're working with a loan officer you trust. I mean, I can say that you and myself and anyone at Legacy, we, we would not commit mortgage fraud just on the sheer. I mean, we're great people and we wouldn't want to do that alone. But on top of that, we, our files are audited. So we have third-party audits of our files, so you can't, we can't commit mortgage fraud. But there are shady lenders out there whose files aren't getting audited, and they yeah. might be doing fraud, and you don't know it. So work with someone you trust. Trust
1: your realtor's recommendation. Yeah, if it's a company that you've like never heard for, and you can't Google and really find them, and there's not reviews, and if it does, you know that that's something to be suspicious. Yeah. But but fraud does not discriminate. It is with small companies, medium-sized companies, large companies. Sometimes the larger companies are too big to fail. And there's too many hands not knowing what the other hand is doing. And they're like, oh, this slipped through the cracks. So like how, what percent, and again, I'm asking you, I mean, I know you're, this was years ago, but if you could guess what percent were, were loans that were originated in a small company versus a big company, do you even remember? Like,
2: I do. Yeah. And, and this is a guesstimate, but roughly 70% came from those big banks, which is nuts, right? So uh, Countrywide, home loans that was absorbed by Bank of America, yeah. they committed so much. I knew if I had a loan with Countrywide, I was going to find fraud. There was always fraud with Countrywide. Wachovia that got absorbed by Wells Fargo. Um, Chase, all the big, big players had tons of fraud because the loan officers, uh, they're less typically a loan officer that works for a big bank is usually a little less educated, a little bit more like a sales rep than really a loan officer. So they probably didn't know what they were doing or they didn't know the repercussions as much as a loan officer like us. It's a bit more, um, you have to be pretty educated to work at Legacy and licensed and experienced. Higher yeah, seasoned, Yeah,
1: for sure. Yeah. Well, that is all super interesting. I want to kind of end with uh, something that right now in this, uh, you know, a lot of income fraud and straw buyers was happening back in 08 uh, with the <laughs> fast and easy program, state of income, state asset. I mean, I just can remember all these names of like you could literally be breathing and get a loan. It was ridiculous. Um, so uh, now what we're what I'm seeing a lot of is occupancy fraud. Because there's a big disparity between prices, you know, closing costs and interest rates on investment property and second homes, vacation homes versus primary. And this is a this has always been there. Like there's always been a difference in the pricing, but I just have seen a lot more of it. Um, well, I haven't seen it, but I've heard that that's like the number one focus of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac right now that governs these and NFHA. So, Talk a little bit about, because I'm sure you dealt with occupancy fraud as well. Like, Tell us what that is and what what that means.
2: And Yeah, we dealt with a ton of occupancy fraud. So someone buys a home, claims it's going to be their primary residence so they can save money at closing, maybe get a little bit better of an interest rate, but they don't move in. Maybe they rent it out or maybe the parents bought the house saying it was going to be for them, but the kid moves in. Right. So there's all sorts of different types of occupancy fraud. Um, But the way we would find it is we'd get a file and I always had to look into occupancy. So I'd find out afterwards, you know, did you actually move in? And the ways we would find out would be, you know, looking at utility bills, looking at where they could have lived previously, interviewed the uh, place maybe that they rented before, interview the landlord to find out, are they still living there? Did they continue living there? Did they move out? Right. So there's lots of wait. Did they file a homestead exemption with the county? So are all these ways that we would look into whether they did actually occupy the home within 60 days of closing, which is the requirement for a primary residence. And it was very common to find occupancy fraud. And one of the most common ones was a bit innocent because it would be parents buying a house for the child that they didn't plan to live in, but they bought it as a primary and so they could qualify, but then they couldn't afford when, if the kiddo didn't pay the mortgage, couldn't afford to it, they couldn't afford to pay their mortgage and their kiddo's house, right? That was a very common one. And I it, my heart would go out to them when I would interviewed them because they had the best intentions, but they still committed mortgage fraud.
1: And maybe the loan officer said it was no big deal. That when you're a parent buying for a child, it's an investment property. You're not going to live there as your primary. So Some of the red flags we see and that we look for that we super investigate is, you know, when let's say someone is buying a new primary and the house is less expensive than where they live, which sometimes can happen when you move to the birds. Like, I get it. But then you're like, okay, it's in the next neighborhood or it's a mile away. They're not there's no you know, there's no reason. Like, are you looking? Are you? Like, why would you be downsizing? You're 35 years old. Mostly people are upgrading, right? Like, it makes sense to downsize when you're older, right? Your kids are going to college. So there's red flags that we see. So I always preface it with clients when I start asking that question. I'm like, hey, I just, I just want to let you know, you know, please understand I'm asking you these questions because we need to be exactly sure what the intent is for the occupancy. And I've, I've had to put the kibosh on. Some borrowers that they're and and especially since we're seeing an influx of people from other states. Oh my gosh, it is. I'm sure you're hearing the same thing. Like, where I'm hearing all kinds of, well, the, I could occupy whatever you tell me. I have to do. I'll do it. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs>
2: yeah. What are your intentions? We got to know the story.
1: I don't think we're going to be able to help you. You know, like whatever the true nature of that property is going to be is what you need to tell the lender. And unfortunately, there's clients that they hear no enough, or they're probably not getting the way what they want. And they're learning how to manipulate the system. So I just want to encourage if those people happen to be listening to this or watching, do not commit mortgage fraud, it is not worth it. And the lenders right now, and in fact, our CEO, Don, uh, told us, you probably got the memo that like, it is so rampant right now that the lender's radar is so on, like they're looking for any reason to audit a file right now because of that reason.
2: Yep. I get it. They're trying to avoid another 2008 crash and I get it.
1: Yeah. It was a miserable time. Yeah, for sure. Well, I really appreciate Jen. I, I mean, I've just learned so much about Your fascinating past. But so tell me, lastly, just thanks again for coming on. Going was just just kind of a natural transition that you like taught yourself so much about mortgage. You're like, okay, I'm going to be a loan officer. Like, what made you leave that to go to this?
2: So I left it initially to have a couple kiddos. I wanted to stay at home with them until they were two. So I stayed home for four years, got both my kids to the youngest to two years old. I was like, okay, I'm willing to do daycare now. I miss work and I loved mortgage. Let me switch over to being a loan officer because as much fun as mortgage fraud was, it was a bit sad because I'm getting people in trouble that was not the investigating part was fun. but I was calling people that were you know upset, losing their home. And I thought, well, what if I could take this knowledge and instead help people get into a home the right way, super educated on it, definitely can afford the mortgage payment. And so I took that approach and I'm so happy I did. Being a loan officer is the coolest. Job I can imagine on the planet. Love it. And all of our homebuyers are so happy because you're walking them through it and educating them. So that was the reason I switched over to being a loan officer.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you've got a lot of great skills, and you uh you're just a great asset for us. So, but thank you for sharing this information. I just uh how not to commit mortgage fraud, like it really is a big deal. And sometimes it's like I said, it's by accident. You don't mean you think it's Kind of a if there's ever even such a thing as a white lie, like well oh, I'm just gonna tell them this. Well, no, that that's not good. <laughs> don't don't do it. And um, if you hear a friend that's gonna do it too, tell them not to do it. It is really a big, serious deal. So I've got lots of um, I've got some resources in the in the notes of this whether it's video or podcast, just some extra resources for you. How to contact us. Um, some more videos that you can watch. But um, thank you, Jen, for being on here and for giving us your knowledge. And uh, we'll talk to you, talk to you on the next on the next episode, Thanks.
0: Thanks for having me, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Loan with Jen podcast. Keep joining me each week to stay up to date on the mortgage industry, as I'll dive into relevant topics so your home financing process, whether you're buying or refinancing, is smooth and simple. If you enjoyed today, please click follow, and that way you'll never miss an episode. To find us on social media, just go to Lone with Jen on any of the social media handles, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for tuning in this week for Real Facts, No BS. Talk soon.